Hi, everyone. It is Dr. Colleen Meyer with Meyer and Mints LLC, bringing you Fearless in Pink. And we have an amazing guest today, guys. Uh, we're going to kind of veer off. I know we've been having a lot of women on our show, but we're going to have our first gentleman, and we're excited about that. This is Jeffrey Des Deskovic. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey, for correcting me on that. And he is going to give us an amazing story of survival and leadership and education and second chances. So Jeffrey, will you want to tell us a little bit more about you that I haven't covered? Sure. So I'm the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. Uh, you can see that in the, in the background that I have. And that's a nonprofit that I started and we free wrongfully convicted people and pursue policy changes aimed at preventing that. We have helped to free 11 people. We've helped to pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. I'm an, I'm an advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of. And we have helped pass an additional five laws that way. Uh, the foundation currently has 10 active cases. We're pursuing policy changes in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And I also have a broader uh, criminal justice reform uh, agenda as well, policy changes. Uh, I have a master's degree and my thesis is written on wrongful conviction cause and reform. I'm also an attorney. Uh, at some point, I got tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom and mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and represent some of the clients myself, uh, make some of the arguments. And I got started on all this advocacy work because I was wrongfully convicted myself. I was wrongfully convicted. I was arrested when I was 16. I was wrongfully convicted at 17. I spent 16 years incarcerated from age 17 to 32 uh, for a murder and rape I did not commit. I was ultimately exonerated through further DNA testing, which not only exonerated me, but also identified the actual perpetrator. So my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. He was arrested and convicted and I have this clear-cut mission in life making a difference and working to free people in the same position that I was once in while preventing this from happening to other people. Your story touched me when we first talked because, you know, you look at and you see stories like yours um, sometimes come up. And it, what, I, what I think about is all that time that, you know, we have one life to live and you had spent this time incarcerated for something you didn't do. What advice would you give to somebody or give, or if you could give advice to your 16, 17 year old self, what would it be when it comes to dealing with um, that, you know, an arrest or interrogation with law enforcement? I would say that after you give your name and where you live, the next thing that you say is, I want a lawyer, you know, and, uh, you know, wait and just insist on that. Don't come off of that. Keep asking for a lawyer. Wait, for, they have to supply you with an attorney and that that attorney will level the playing field. It will prevent uh, law enforcement from overreaching you. It'll prevent them from coercing you or making threats, which is what happened to me. Uh, I think that's really important for women to know uh, because, uh, you know, I was a 16 year old when this happened. And how many of us know what to do if the police want to speak with us? How many of us know what to tell our son or our daughter? You know, the innocence of suspects often works against them. And we think, well, if we haven't done anything and we don't know anything about a crime, then what could possibly happen? 
if we uh, waive our rights and speak to uh, the police without an attorney, but actually quite a bit could actually go wrong. There have been some wrongful conviction cases where the police actually co-opt the parent into becoming an agent of coercion themselves. Well, come on, Jimmy, just tell them what happened and we can get out of here. I mean, they wouldn't have you here if they didn't, if you didn't do this. And so that's, that's actually happened as well. And on a similar basis, I think it's really important to also know that if the police ask for permission to search your car or to search your house, never, ever agree to that. Never agree to that. Just be clear. Look, I'm not agreeing for you to search my car and or my house. So if you decide to do it anyway, I'm going to step back and you do it, but you're doing it without my consent. And, uh, and then later on, you can bring that up in, in court because it has unfortunately happened sometimes when people have allowed the police to search their uh, trunk, their car or their house that sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes uh, things are planted. So you want to steer clear of those situations. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Sure. Let's say um, you're going in and you're getting interrogated and you say, the first thing you say is, you know, you know, I want a lawyer. Does that, no, no, it doesn't make a person guilty, but does that put in the officer's head? Well, why are they asking for an attorney if they didn't do anything? Let's address that a little bit. How do you feel about that? that maybe that well, well first of all if they're, if they're yeah if no I, I think that's the line of reasoning that many people go down in deciding not to ask for a lawyer so mm. look first of all if they're interrogating you they already think that you're guilty they already consider you as a suspect so you not asking for a lawyer is really not going to help the situation any you know and people think they can talk their way out of things but if mm-hmm. the police are determined to arrest you you know they're, they're going to ultimately uh, arrest you so you should ask for a lawyer and don't let them, you know, t- talk you out of it. And again, the whole purpose of the, having the lawyer present is just so they could level the playing field because, you know, this this state has its awesome power and we're just an individual. That's why court captions read people of the state of whatever versus in someone's individual uh, name. I think. I believe I, I agree with you. I think it's. You know, we have this right for a reason, right? And mm-hmm. I think even if you you go in and like you said, they're not going to call you in unless there's a reason they're calling you in. So you're doing, they're doing an interrogation. I, I don't see that it's a issue. It shouldn't be an issue because, you know, when you go into interrogation, a lot of times people are scared. Right. They, they don't understand the process. What's going on? I just want to go home. Let me go home. And then things can happen where they can get themselves in trouble without even meaning to do it, but but just because you're scared or you don't know how to act. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's, there's a whole psychological system. I mean, not to get too far into the weeds of legal things, but there's a whole system of interrogation system called the read technique, which involves psychological tactics that the police utilize in order to overcome the, the will of the person that they're questioning. So just having an interview in, in the police station, so get them out of a familiar environment, cut them off from friends, family, moral support, uh, taking innocence off the table. In other words, repeating the same questions over and over again, so, you know, pretending like an innocence assertion hasn't, hasn't just been uh, made. Uh, they have what they call the alternative question. Well, do you, do you still beat your wife? What's the right way to answer that? <laughs> yes or no? I don't still beat her. No. Uh, yes, I still just, 
So yeah. there's the alter that's another uh, that's another uh, technique. And then what they call uh, maximization. So they might emphasize what the possible penalties are that you're facing should you be arrested. And this is why right now, Colleen, you need to tell me what happened. Let me help me to understand this. I'll talk to the prosecutor for you. You know, this isn't some cold calculated thing. Instead, this happened or that. I would have reacted like that, Colleen. I would have reacted mm -hmm. like that if I was in that position. That's what happened, isn't it? And so maximization, minimization, you know, but then when you come to court, it's going to be a totally different scenario there. And they really do mean that when they say everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, when you were being interrogated, let's go back. Um, did you have any of your parents with you or were you separated? No. Well, I was, I was separated, but I just, I hesitate to use that phraseology because they were never with me in the first place. Mm. You know, I, I was separate in the aspect they weren't with me and they didn't call them. But I, I, a lot of people don't realize that if you're 16 years old, then the law considers you to be an adult for the limited purpose of being able to speak to the police, waive your rights without a, an attorney or a parent or a guardian being uh, being present. So no, I was completely by myself. It was a school day. My mother thought I was in school. They drove me from the city of Peekskill across county lines to the town of Brewster in Putnam County. So 40 minutes away, I didn't know where I was. I had no independent way of coming back. Three officers came with me. Uh, there was no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. The polygraphist was a cop, but he was dressed like a civilian. He pretended not to be law enforcement. Mm. They gave me this four-page brochure to explain how the polygraph worked, but I didn't understand the big words in it. But then I thought, well, they had convinced me because it was like a six weeks run up to it in which half the time they talked to me as a suspect. And then the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. So they were interacting with me for a period of six weeks. They got me to agree to take the polygraph by telling me that we got some new information in the file. We just want you to, uh, that we want to share with you. You just need to take and pass a polygraph. Hence by going to the police station for this polygraph. So when I didn't understand how the polygraph worked, I figured, well, I'm just there to help the police anyway. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they put me in a small room and he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. Then he attached me to the machine. And then he launched into his third degree tactic. So he raised his voice at me. He kept uh, asking me the same questions over and over again. Uh, he, he invaded my personal space. And each hour that passes by, my fear increases in proportion to the time that I was there. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Mm. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. That really shot my fear to the roof. And then the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, you know, who I had been looking up to as a father figure because my own father was never involved in my life in any aspect. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off, but couldn't do so any longer. Uh, look, you have to help yourself. Just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking the long term, just being concerned, my safety in the moment. I, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed quite large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Uh, then there's this threat. There's this false promise. So I made up. A, I decided to make up a story based on the information they gave me in the course of the interrogation, the six weeks run up to it. 
by the time it was all said and done, I, I collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. And obviously I was arrested. I'm sorry that happened to you. You know, you hear that or you see that um, a lot with, I think, especially minors or teenagers uh, because they just want to go home. They just want to go home. You know, I want out of this environment. I just want to go home. I'll tell you what you want to know. I just want to go home. And they're not going home. No, they're not. No, they can go home maybe a decade or two later. You know, so coerced false confessions have uh, caused wrongful convictions in 25% of the cases. And as you correctly point out, while adults have uh, given false confessions themselves, particularly vulnerable populations are people with mental health issues and youth, which I was youth. You know, listen to your story, I'm picturing in my head. I have a 13 year old granddaughter. And if anybody picked her up and taken her to somewhere to interrogate her, without an attorney, I don't care what the circumstances that that would, I'm going to be frank, piss me the hell off because she's a child, right? you know, and I, to me, you know, look, we, we've, you know, we're we're all older now, but I remember being 16, 17, 18, I'm talking going into my early twenties. I was naive. I was, you know, ignorant of some of the things that there are in the world because I wasn't exposed to them. And if you look at that, it's so important that we do the right thing so that we don't incarcerate the wrong people. Right. And to build off your point, in my case in particular, as an example of this bigger point that we're making, as a result of the wrong person, me, being incarcerated wrongfully, The actual perpetrator was left free in the street and he killed a second victim three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and who had uh, two children. That's disgusting. You know, there's so much to, to, to unpack with with this conversation. You know, when I was. And, you know, when you study government in fifth grade or something, and, you know, you always believe I am innocent until proven guilty. And I remember as a kid thinking, if I ever, you know, got accused of something I didn't do, but that's okay because I'm innocent until proven guilty. But that's almost Pollyanna kind of a thinking process, because is it really? Right. In my opinion, they say it's guilty. They say it's innocent until proven guilty, but that's not the way that the court system works. Uh, I believe that you are guilty until you're proven uh, until you're proven innocent. You know, uh, and just like uh, it's like if you, God forbid, if you're watching this and you ever find yourself falsely accused, you know, you have to be very proactive in your defense. So you, you should be on top of your lawyer, like you know, you should know. Your lawyer, what investigation are you doing? You know, are you gathering other evidence? What defense are you mounting? I want you to present the defense. Do not sit back and just rely on trying to discredit evidence against me. I want a defense being put on for me. But I didn't know those things. I didn't know that. My lawyer did not interview or call my alibi 
as a witness. He, you know, did not tell me what the strategy was. He was, look, you're, you already thought you knew better than an adult as was, right? Your mother told you don't speak with the police because I told her the first interaction I had. But, you know, I, I was raised in general that the police are our friend and they're there to help us. And I was innocent. So what could happen? So mm-hmm. I thought I knew. Plus, I was 16, which is really the age where kids are starting to assert our, our individuality and our independence and pushing back on authority. And we know better than our parents. So all that was in the mix at, at, at that time. And so my lawyer, in a way, kind of played on that. You know, he said that, uh, look, you already thought you knew better than an adult once. Look at what happened. Just sit back. Let me do my job. And so I didn't stay on top of him. I didn't know what he what he planned what he planned to do, uh, and as a result of that, I was wrongfully imprisoned. You know, but you know, God forbid they coerce a confession out of you. Then your lawyer has to answer that confession. He has to disprove that confession by presenting other evidence, and he has and uh, he has to explain that confession. The best way of doing that is gathering other evidence, disproving parts of the confession, and letting the defendant testify. But he didn't do any of that. He just sat back. And as a result, I was uh, I was wrongfully imprisoned. And really, he aggravated my not fully understanding the legal process, because at this point I was 17 by he would not allow he would not allow uh, my mother or any of the male relatives, members of my extended family. He wouldn't allow any of them to participate in any of the conversations about strategy, such as whether I want to have a uh, trial by jury or a judge, whether I was going to testify or not. He wouldn't allow me to. So again, God forbid you ever are in that situation or your kids are, you know, you somebody, my, my mother, if I had had someone that knew better, they would have went to his supervisor and said, look, my son is on trial for his life here. He's, he's 17 years old. He doesn't fully understand. And this lawyer in your organization will not allow me or anyone else to participate in any of these conversations. I, I need to be included so I can help explain and I can help make decisions. Yeah, at the end of the day, it might be my child's decision, but I want to inform them. I want to know what's going on. I want to help them to understand, but none of that happened. Mm. Let's talk a minute about um, district attorneys. Okay. Yes. Um, and I've seen, you know, I watch, I watch all, you know, I'm, into the crime shows and uh, law and order. And- yeah. Well, no, no. I like the documentary type ones when they're talk- oh, okay. talking about a real case. Yeah. Yes. That's even better. Mm-hmm. That's even better. But what you find is, and I saw this before and this, and I read up on you. So, and I know this happened to you too, that I feel it's now there's good people. You know, we talk about there's, there's good cops, there's bad cops, there's good attorneys, mm-hmm, sure. there's, bad, there's, you know, teachers, nurse, whatever. But it surprises me how many district attorneys don't, if somebody's convicted, they don't want to hear it. It's, it's almost like a notch. Well, you know, I, I, right. it's all about win and lose. It's not about innocence. It's sometimes it's about win or lose. And you see this with some district attorneys who don't or the opposite. They don't want to go to court and charge a person because it's win or lose. And it's, Right. Well, I mean, 97 and 98 percent of the cases end in plea bargains. You know, so most people are not going are not going to trial and a prosecutor, a a district attorney. They're supposed to be a minister of justice, meaning convicted guilty through lawfully obtained evidence in a fair trial uh, or 
uh, you dismiss against someone who's innocent, but too often it doesn't become about that search for justice. It doesn't become about uh, truth or innocence or guilt. It, it just becomes about winning and losing. Why? Well, on the level of the individual prosecutor, they want to get a, they want to win. Why? So they can get a, a promotion. They can move up and that's going to come with an increased salary. Maybe they aspire to one day be the district attorney. On the district attorney's level, you know, they might, you know, they want to, they may want to run in their conviction record. Well, I've kept us safe. We've won 98%, 99% of the cases. Well, yeah, okay, great. How many of those, did you get it right all those times? Or is it just win, win or losses? So that, that becomes a factor. Or maybe the district attorney, him or herself, aspire to move up to a, a higher political position and they're going to springboard. And so often, uh, since they, they make sensationalized cases or cases that they make, sensationalized because sometimes they can create that environment themselves are used as that springboard to move up and then there's tunnel vision as well which is when we form a conclusion and we're going to only pay attention to evidence that confirms that and we're going to ignore evidence that is the opposite of that and we're going to come up with such obscure explanations that defy common sense so as an example of that in my case before the trial started the dna didn't match me but they convicted me anyway. They, they said they got the medical examiner to commit fraud and claim the victim had, had been promiscuous, which was a lie, but the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea what was being said about her in, in the courtroom. They mentioned another youth by name. They claimed that she had slept with, but they never tried to prove that. They didn't call him as a witness. They didn't ask for DNA sample. And if that, this fiction that they made up that she slept with somebody prior to my murdering and raping her actually happened, then that would mean that there would be DNA of at least two people then, right? Not, right. not DNA of one person. So that's what I mean as an example of tunnel vision and ignoring uh, evidence that doesn't fit or coming up with some obscure explanation uh, for it as to defy common sense. Well, what's amazing about you is you came out of this experience and you went to school and got your law degree. Right. And, and now you have your foundation that helps other people. So let's talk about your foundation a little bit. Do you want to share, you know, what exactly is the, pro you know, I know what's about. It's about freeing wrongfully convicted people. And it's mm -hmm. also about pushing policy changes aimed at preventing wrongful convictions in the first place. So uh, in terms of our case acceptance process, we, you know, we ask ourselves two questions. Do we believe that the person asking for our help is really innocent? And do we see a potential way to win? Do we see a potential way to prove that? So once somebody's been found guilty, they don't have the presumption. Well, they never really had presumption of innocence, but at least there's lip service paid to the other way around. But when you've been found guilty, you're presumed guilty. So now it's up to the defense to find new evidence that proves that someone's guilty. So that's in terms of cases and you know policy. Again, you look at cases, what are the common patterns in wrongful conviction cases and what could be changed if there was a better process? So that's that's what I that's what the organization is. And you know, I started that using some of the compensation uh, that that I that I received. And you know, my mission in life is to do this work, and that's how I make sense of what uh, what happened to me. And it's healing, it's cathartic, it it uh, makes my suffering count for something. And I have an inner peace about it. And, and you go to high schools too. Or you go to I high don't. schools and universities, or it's just high school level. That Both. You're I go to high schools, universities, 
uh, law schools, community organizations, sometimes faith-based uh, places. Uh, sometimes it's settings where just the audiences are legal professionals. You know, there's different formats. So I might be telling my story or there's other times where it's more instructive. So when I'm in front of groups of prosecutors or judges or lawyers, it, it's more instructive. So I'm teaching them and I'm only referring to my own case to the limited extent it supports a particular uh, teaching point that I'm trying to make. When I speak at universities, then I might, or even law schools, then once I get past my story, then I start talking about what are the ways that the system is broken that lead to wrongful conviction? And what are some of the other non-innocence justice reform issues? How can we make the system more accurate? Now, when I'm in a high school setting, I don't do the reforms. I instead focus in on what to do if the police, uh, what to do if the police want to question you. And, and I might talk about what are, what are some careers doing innocence work. If you feel inspired by me or my, you know, you could think about being an attorney or an investigator or a paralegal uh, within the context of a nonprofit. There's room for other disciplines, social media, public relations, grant writing, fundraising. Uh, on the reintegrative side, you could be a social worker, could be a psychologist. So I talk about those, uh, those things uh, rather than being heavy on the reforms, which I think are somewhat beyond the grasp or it'll be more hard to, to uh, of our high school to wrap his or her uh, head uh, around it. it. It's so impactful, everything. I, in a second time we've talked and it still just amazes me, you know, you, you, like we like I said before, you took lemons and you made lemonade out of it. And in your not only did you make it, but you're giving it away. You know, you're sharing your wisdom and your knowledges and your experience. Jeff, if if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and say, you know, I'm interested in either supporting your foundation, be a part of your foundation, just talking to you, how what would be the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. And it could be about that or, hey, we want to bring you in and do a presentation or any number of reasons. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how people can get a hold of me, there is a website, uh, www.deskovic.org. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. There is a web form there so people can email me that way. I am on social media. So I have a public figure page on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn. So I can get messages that way. And uh, in terms of just trying to... Uh, inspire people, including women, not limited to women, but certainly women as well, and which is your audience here today. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a generic formula that I really have extrapolated from, from my entire life journey of wrongful imprisonment, but also struggling to reintegrate and ultimately becoming a lawyer and doing the work uh, that I do. And so to share that generic formula, so hopefully some people can apply it. So set a goal, whether it's overcoming some adversity or just something you aspire to. So, but a goal. Then after that, uh, have a realistic plan, you know, meaning you should be able to look at it three or four different ways and think to yourself, yeah, I can see how that would work because who wants to carry out a plan if you don't think that the plan can be successful? Uh, be flexible, meaning that if, remember that the, the goal is the goal, the plan is not the goal. So if an unexpected door or opportunity that was not part of your plan opens for you, then if it, as long as it's bringing you towards your goal, think about uh, think about walking through that. You know, you, you go ahead and do it. And 
there's no, don't accept any excuses, okay? There might be reasons why something's more of a challenge, why it's more difficult, but no reasons why you can't actually accomplish it. Work really hard. So if you want something, how bad do you want it? Are you willing to leave it? Are you willing to leave it all out on the field to use an, use an analogy? Mm -hmm. uh, and rather than just sitting back and just waiting for something to draw on your lap, fall on your lap, it's probably not going to happen that way. You have to put yourself in position for a miracle to occur, for a breakthrough to happen or someone to take notice and open a door for you and assist. And then uh, never give up. So when you reach a point that you cannot go on any further, that might be the key moment where you were on a, on a verge of a breakthrough, but because mm -hmm. you didn't keep going, it wouldn't happen. So even though you can't continue anymore, and that happened to me a number of times throughout the course of my life, uh, keep going anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And when you do have that breakthrough, uh, reach back and help people in, in a similar position do some work on the preventative side. If you can prevent people from going through that hardship or difficulty, uh, mm -hmm. then you should do so. And if you can, then, you know, it'll make your suffering count for something. It'll be healing, cathartic. It'll uh, help make the world a little, little bit, a uh, little bit better. And I know that that can happen. That can be applied. Like I've attended events, for example, I've been at an, a fundraising event uh, that was put on by a nonprofit organization started by a woman that was sexually trafficked. She told her story, helped raise money mm -hmm. in order to pay the cost of helping to free other people. Uh, similarly, I mean, I've seen people that used to be homeless and now they work with homeless populations. So it can apply to that. Uh, be, I know of from, from 50,000 feet away, I've seen women that were victims of domestic abuse. And now not only have they relocated and resituated their life and are safe and are stable and, and, and have healed, but now they're helping women that are in that same position that they once were in, they're doing some preventative work. So whether it's those things or discrimination or racism or um, sexism, uh, having been afflicted with a debilitating illness, you name it, it can be applied to that particular formula. And, you know, we need more inspirational people that are engaged in difference-making uh, work. So I would love to encourage people who are listening, whatever the challenges, hardships, or goals, think about applying that generic formula and then reaching back for people that are still there. And we need more difference-makers. And I'm delighted to come on a platform like this where I can you know, reach people with uh, my, my words. Jeff, I, I think you're absolutely amazing. And, and that is all great advice. And I'm glad you came in and talked about your story and your journey. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm going to put all your information out on the podcast and the Facebook page and LinkedIn and everywhere else that we, we put out our recording. Wonderful. Our and videos. if you like what you... And if people, if you're listening out there and you like what you've heard today, I do want to point out that there is a documentary short about my advocacy and life post-exoneration uh, called Conviction, which is on Amazon Prime. It was actually the first documentary that that Gio works, a, uh, uh, someone, uh, a woman living in the U.S. from Canada, and this was her first endeavor into doing documentaries, so... I want oh. to encourage people to check. I want to encourage women to to check it out. And how did it get started? Well, she was working in the financial industry, and she became aware of a different wrongful conviction case. Uh, the podcast serial, uh, which is really what ignited the world mm -hmm. on fire, really with respect to whole podcast. And so that had to do with the wrongful conviction case of Adnan Sayed, and so that caught her attention. 
And she just felt like she wanted to get involved some kind of way, but other than in a legal sense. And she wanted to do something that was more meaningful to her than just continuing to work in finance. So she went to school, uh, it went, you know, went to film school and then uh, decided to go about it through documentary. And I was the first case that she decided to shoot the documentary on because we had bumped into each other at a couple of fundraising events for at Knife Syed. And so that was how she uh, began her journey. So look, that's an example of, of somebody that, you know, and now she's, it's one been accepted in 12 festivals, won three awards and, you know, she's really happy that she did it and she's looking to do other documentaries in, in the future. So an example of a woman making a lot of uh, impact in, in the world. That sounds amazing. Maybe we can you can set us up to have her on Fearless and Peace. Oh, I would love to do that. Absolutely. Yes, I know she would love to come on as well. Yeah. All right, Jeffrey, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.